This episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films is brought to you by Tops. Voyage across the Star Wars galaxy with Tops in an all-new trading card collection. Tops, journey to Star Wars The Last Jedi. Take a journey across the Star Wars saga with a sneak peek at Star Wars The Last Jedi by visiting Tops.com to pick your trading cards today. And check out the Star Wars Card Trader app. Collect and trade cards from 1977 to The Last Jedi. The entire Star Wars galaxy is in the palm of your hands. Be sure to download free now at the App Store and Google Play. A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films. The official Expanded Universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the force. That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 224 of Star Wars Beyond the Films. Your Star Wars discussion podcast, your podcast of legends, as well as canon. Your ticket to that galaxy far, far away. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division, at www.StarWarsReport.com. Episodes that can also be found on iTunes, as well as Stitcher, and right on our own Twitter and Facebook pages at SW Beyond Films. Hey, but enough about how you got here. Let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse, the bipolar Star Wars fan, Mark Herleman, and with me, like a fateful vision of the future, the EU guru himself, the count of our two continuities, Mr. Nathan P. Butler! Hey, everybody! Uh, I think about visions of the future, and I wonder if anybody who is sitting back and reading the comic we're going to be talking about this time, which is one of my favorites of all time. In fact, the end of my absolute favorite of all time. Would ever have sat back and looked into the future and thought that we'd be discussing this comic on the same day that I just summarized for the Star Wars Timeline Gold, a story in which a mouse droid acts as a courier for (laughs) TK-421 as he tries to use gay sex as a way of getting career advancement with possibly Grand Moff Tarkin or Admiral Mahdi. I don't think we could have predicted that back then, and if anyone had predicted it, we would have laughed at you and called you insane. But welcome to 2017 mm-hmm. Star Wars now. That was not a joke, by the way. That is a story called of MSE6, Mouse Droids, and Men in From a Certain Point of View. I kid you not. <laughs> Man. And, and, and just to throw this out here, today is the day the new trailer should be dropping. We've got a pre-trailer trailer with Ray doing some cool stuff over at the Rock Island that her and Luke are on. Uh, I'm looking forward to that. I don't know if I'm going to be watching some NFL tonight, but it's coming. Speaking of things that are also coming, I don't know if you heard about this or not, but we've got members of the Second Airborne down at New York Comic Con right now. And unfortunately, they got robbed last night. Uh, Riley, Aaron, and Williams' hotel room got broke into and their laptops were stolen. So they got to wake up with cops all in their hotel room and stuff. Like, man, I couldn't believe that. That was like the first thing I saw this morning when I woke up. I'm just like, man... Like, talk about three hits at once. You've got Ion Cannon, you've got Bookworms, and Star Wars Report all getting tanked at one time. Like, oh, that's brutal, man. Brutal. Almost as brutal as what we're about to get into. It was while they were outside of the room, though. It wasn't like there was, it, it wasn't like they dealt with armed intruders or anything like that themselves. So they're all safe. They just. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, I guess it's, it, it could have, could have been worse. Um, and that is why. We have a gun in a security system at the house here. Um, just saying. Um, but no, this is um, – I've actually been really excited to, to get back to talking about this subject because this time we're covering Legacy War. 
And I've always said for years, this is my favorite Star Wars comic series, just the original legacy series of which this is basically the end cap or the epilogue that kind of brings the climactic conclusion to everything. Um, and it's it's a nice breath of fresh air because, like I said, I'm working right now on finishing up the Star Wars Timeline Gold's new release for 2017. It's 20th anniversary edition that will be released um, on October 17th uh, alongside the Patreon that's launching on the 17th. So a lot of stuff going on now. But it's very much sort of the nitpicky, okay, how does this story out of these 40 and from a certain point of view fit into A New Hope? And how does it interweave with the other ones from that anthology that's really a painstaking kind of frustrating process at times. So it's nice while I'm doing that to also have the breath of fresh air of checking out this that I know is uh, is one of my all-time favorites. And did you know some mm. uh, some Star Wars Beyond the Films history here? I went back and did some research. You realize we started covering the Legacy series with our first episode on the Broken story arc um, basically four and a half years ago. April of 2013. So we are ending a four and a half year journey in this episode and the next. Wow. And, and that's weird, too, to think that Legacy Volume 6 of War came out May 25th of 2011. I mean, the series is already over when we started. Like, oh, man. But not that's, by that's, much, yeah. really. I mean, we started when, not, I guess, really. um, Legacy Volume 2 was still going. Yeah, yeah. Like, not Volume 2 as far as trade paperback Volume 2, but Volume 2 where it brought in uh, Anya Solo and all that stuff. So, yeah, yeah. it's... It's been quite a journey, and now we get to see essentially the journey's end uh, in this episode and the next. It is a two-parter, folks, because this one demands it. Yes. Sacrifices had to be made. Your time. at Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time, or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars, and so do we. This episode, we plunge into John Ostrander's last installment of his Legacy series with Legacy War. Now, before we get too deep into spoiler territory, we'll give you our quick spoiler-free rundown. Just be sure to jump off of Tarkin's arrogance. So as I said, this is definitely um, one of my favorites. It's the culminating storyline for Legacy. Now, of course, if you haven't read the previous Legacy arcs from the main series, then this miniseries that acts as an ending isn't going to make a whole lot of sense necessarily to you because it is the payoff for a lot of things that have been building and building over the course of this series. But I think it works very well. It, there's a lot of loose ends to tie up and a whole lot of characters in this era that have been introduced and different factions and they managed to do a pretty good job of balancing these so that while not everyone necessarily gets their moment to shine, most of the different groups wind up at least getting touched upon at some point so we kind of know where they are without it necessarily feeling like a where are they now, whatever happened to type of thing where we're deviating from the main story just to try to see where they went. Really, I think the only unfortunate uh, absence here is Hondo Carr. And the Mandalorians of this era that don't wind up playing mm -hmm. a role here. But Joker Squad, which he was a part of when working with the Empire, uh, the Sith Empire, that is, they do appear. So there is at least something coming back from that noob issue and so forth. Um, yeah, definitely one of the great series. And this is what sort of left me with a, a very strong 
uh, uh, favorable opinion of John, Ost- John Ostrander, excuse me, and Jan Dersima um, was Legacy. Republic did to a degree. Legacy really sort of shot it through the roof. Um, and then I really like their Dawn of the Jedi stuff. And as I've said before, this is actually something that that caused me um, to back the new project that they're doing um, that was through Kickstarter called Hex or Dusk. It's a non-Star Wars project. Um, but you had all kinds of different backer rewards for the different pledge levels, right? Mini print stickers, a PDF copy, a signed copy of the trade paperback, uh, and all that kind of stuff, or the signed uh, hardback or whatever it was. But mm-hmm. I actually got to a point where I was so excited for this and wanted to support them um, to such a large degree after it really enjoying this series um, that I made a pledge of a level that basically gives me um, – I-, I will exist as a background character in that comic somewhere – um, and have a six by ten sketch um, of that character that is based on my likeness, um, because I was like, I, I really want to back this. This is actually around the time that we were buying our house, and they kept saying, yeah. "Don't you, don't you have any decent sized, you know, little payment or anything coming out of your account that's not a regular bill? Because that could screw up oh. your ability to get your mortgage." So I had to actually, I was frequently checking in with Jan, saying, you know. Is that level still going to exist? Are you going to do another version of that level to make sure that I was even going to have the opportunity to get it? And they wound up putting that level up twice to make sure that there was an opportunity for me to get it because each time it was up, there were only five slots available for that backer level. So oh, wow. um, my, I, it's hard for me to over-describe over um, my <laughs> enjoyment of the Legacy series as my favorite Star Wars comic series uh, with, I guess, Tales of the Jedi being second. Um, that said, I do think that this is one where it probably should have been where things ended. Not to say anything terrible about Legacy Volume 2, but the way this ends gives us a nice sort of bow put on this era that makes you feel like we finally reached a true point of conclusion. And unfortunately, the way that Legacy Volume 2 had to sort of be rushed and then shut down very quickly and resolve very quickly when they were getting towards the reboot of the saga and the switch from Dark Horse to Marvel meant that the series that came after this that was supposed to continue expanding upon that era of the universe really felt very stunted and didn't manage mm-hmm. to do nearly as good a job of, of, of telling that story and fleshing out the universe as Legacy itself did um, with more time to do so. Um, so in a lot of ways, I wish this was the end of as far into the future as we got for the Legends continuity, but it's not. There's still Legacy Volume 2 after this, um, which we have covered several arcs of years ago here on the show. Um, But definitely one to check out, but I would recommend checking out all of Legacy, which should come as no surprise to anybody. Yeah, you know, it's funny too, because you mentioned we did cover Legacy Volume 2, and I forgot that at the end of this plot, Nil put so many things that become key to what's going on with the Sith into play at the end of this. And when I got there, I, I remember this time reading it thinking, there are so many things wide open. Like, the, you know, the Sith have all gone into hiding. Like, yeah, Cade, you know, he wipes out the main guy, but like so many people are still around. And, you know, that concept... And then you have the aspect of the Mandalorians. I remember when we see the Sith troopers and the very Mandalorian look of their armor, I kept thinking this was going to somehow tie into what was going on with the Mandalorians. Like thinking like maybe Crate got a hold of the Mandalorians and it was the Mandalorian people that he was converting or something. But no, they didn't go that route. So, you know, with that one, I felt like it was kind of a, a sad loss. I did like the fact that we got Joker Squad, but they were there and then gone. Like, 
you know, the last the last thing we see is literally like Hardcase going down and the noob taking up the mantle of leader kind of thing. And that's that's it. Like and they're fighting for the wrong side. I'm like, oh, I was kind of like hoping like they also would be in the group that ended up doing that last minute conversion over coming back to Ronfell's fleet. But they didn't. Uh, I'm in the same boat, though, as you that this is definitely one of my favorite series. Um, I think one of the things, you know, I've always said I've been a huge fan of the New Jedi Order, and this really plays off of it really well. But it it goes beyond that. I mean, you, you think about the fact that Krayat is Asherard Head, a Jedi from Qui-Gon Jinn's time. Kukruk is a Jedi from Qui-Gon Jinn's time. Uh, Tarar Asar, Asar, however you say her name, the Tree Lady, is again a Jedi from Qui-Gon Jinn's era. And I kept thinking, you know... What better way for Crate to go down than those two Jedi, Kruk and Sa, thinking we've got to do something about this? This is our this is our class. We have got to do something here and put a stop to this. No, they sit back and they let Cade do it all. Which, I mean, I, I guess it works because like there's moments where you know Cade's getting these visions and you're thinking like this can't end well. Like everything he's thinking, everything so far seems to be pushing him in this direction, but he don't see anything past a certain point. Like he's got to die, right? And then. With Krayt, you know, you find out Krayt has died, he's come back to life, and you're just like, oh my god, like, he's got all these visions for Cade, he wants to kill Cade and bring Cade back to life, you're just like, what? Like, I, for me, there were so many things going on in this issue, my notes are insanely big, I was just scribbling down so many little details here, there, and everywhere, um, but for me, the whole payoff here is just what's going on with Cade, like, there are so many great dialogue moments throughout this arc that really pay big. Uh, the character interactions and stuff are great. There are things that make me scratch my head and question, but not in a bad way. One of those where I'm like, I want to know more, you know? And I think that's the thing about the series that I really loved was there were very few moments where I was upset. It was always one of those things where I wanted more, you know, my mouth was watered. Like I, I definitely could smell the sweet ambrosia of the cookies that Jan was putting out there with her art. And that's the other thing. Like the only other comic that really at this time for me that, that set next to this one was KOTOR. And the main thing about legacy that I love more than KOTOR is the solidness of Jan's artwork. You know, I mean, uh, you look at Zane Carrick in KOTOR and, and he just looks all over the place in texture and style and how he was drawn. Cade, it's very rare to see him not look like himself. The background characters all look like themselves. And again, it gets back to that era of the New Jedi Order. Like so many things were promised of built from the New Jedi Order that became this legacy. You know, you got Jagged Fell being the first emperor. Roan is the third emperor. Um, you know, we were always wondering if Cole and Nat were Ben Skywalker's kids or his grandkids. I'm pretty convinced at this point they were his kids. Uh, but there was just so many cool moments like that, that that go throughout this. And the concept of the legacy coming forth again and again. And it really plays well with the stories. Mmm, cookies. Oh, the dark side. They got dark chocolate chip. We've analyzed their attacks, sir, and there are spoilers. Should I have your ship standing by? Evacuate? In our moment of triumph? I think you overestimate their chances. So consider that your spoiler warning, Beyonders and Sentient of All Ages, because here we go on another adventure beyond the films. All right, you know how they do. You can't keep a bad Sith down. Darth Krayt has returned from the dead, stronger, more evil, and more determined than ever to crush the galaxy under his heel. With Emperor Ronfell's Imperials, the Galactic Alliance, the Jedi, and even some of his own Sith followers arrayed against him, Krait would seem overmatched. 
but his enemies have not reckoned with the power of the dark side. If Cade Skywalker was ever going to run from his legacy, now would be the time. Wrong, Cade. Wrong. <laughs> All right, folks, so we're checking out the first three issues of this six-issue miniseries in this episode. The next episode will carry on. Uh, no need for spoiler-free at that point because we will have already dealt with it. Uh, we'll do four, five, and six, and we'll handle the covers in that second issue here, just so you kind of know our game plan. So, as usual, one issue at a time, summary-wise, to give you a sense of it, just in case you haven't read it in a while. We start out issue number one with basically a long monologue by Darth Krayt talking about his past, which does answer some fundamental questions for us, like what exactly was the circumstance in which his body was in stasis, supposedly dead, and then somehow his body just disappeared? How exactly did that work? Well, it turns out that basically, um, thanks, I guess, to Carnish Muir, he was able to figure out how to basically pull his consciousness deep within his body um, so that he could theoretically heal rather than um, actually being dead. So that's why he seemed to be dead, apparently, to Weirlock. And really, only Darth Talon, who was near to his body and guarding it, was ever able to sort of hear him through the Force, reaching out, basically saying, you know, let me out. So she is the one that actually, once he is healed enough, actually released him in secret. So she was a conspirator throughout, not just that she found him once he was freed, she was the one who actually freed him, which answers an unanswered question from uh, the original 50-issue run. We then jump to Kate Skywalker having a vision-slash-nightmare in which he kills Nat Skywalker, a.k.a. Bantha Rock, and Wolf Sazen. Not good. And he's concerned because every time he has one of these dreams, every time he has one of these visions, constantly he's seeing him killing his own friends. And he, yeah, may... like Order 66. You notice that too? It's like flipping a switch. Right. And he is someone who, as you may recall, was the only person outside of the Sith to have sensed it when Darth Krayt sent out that pulse through the Force to basically let everyone know that he was still alive. So there's some trepidation. Um, he says that Krayt's alive, and he says he's got to get the job done, he got to kill Krayt, um, and he's needing coordination with the Jedi and others to be able to pull this off. But the Jedi, as Mark mentioned in the spoiler-free part, really aren't all that hot on the idea of supporting him because what does it say about him if he's the only one other than a Sith who sensed it? He must be dark side attuned and such himself. But because Wolf Sazen believes in him, they're willing to believe in Cade, more that they're believing in Wolf than Cade himself. Um, and Cade is kind of annoyed because the Jedi don't seem like they want to do anything. They just want to stay in the hidden temple on Tybus. And it's not so much that even the crew of uh, his ship uh, actually want to do anything with this. Um, because the crew of the Minoth, that is Jiraiya Slim, Delia Blue, not so much R2-D2. R2's kind of okay with it, I guess. You don't really see him in the story. Um, they're wondering whether this really is what they're supposed to be doing. Because... With Cade, it's like he wants to kill Sith, and killing Sith is sort of for fun, but killing Krayt is what will make him happy, because it will sort of get rid of that menace hanging over him, and they're kind of, I mean, they're along with him, because they care for him, but at the same time, they recognize this isn't just the normal type of thing they used to do simply as pirates. Uh, then we jump to the Sith Temple on Coruscant, where Darth Weirlock III, Darth Weirlock, the one who's been ruling since Krayt's apparent death, gives a speech as a giant hologram to the people of the Sith Empire, and basically he lays it all out. He says, so some of you believe that because you saw Lord Krayt in a vision that he is alive. Krayt is dead. I know because I killed him. 
So it's not something he'd ever revealed before. His health failed and his mind with it. He was too weak to lead the one Sith. Were he the crate of old, I could not have done it. I am now the one Sith's leader. If this pretender comes to Coruscant, the one Sith will fight him, and I will kill him. Thus shall it be. Yeah, not setting up. It's kind of like the boxers getting ready to go into a fight, both talking it up. One of them's going (laughs) to get their butt kicked. Um, And we find that Lord Strife... One of the other ones Sith that we have seen is basically going to come down on the side of whoever wins. He's not necessarily going to be loyal to either of them until he sees how it pans out. And Weirlock actually sends um, Sarai, his daughter, who would be the next Weirlock in theory, is wanting to send her away to safety. Elsewhere mm-hmm. on Coruscant, we see Nina Calixta, a.k.a. Morrigan Court, and we will get to find out in this miniseries, which identity came first. Um, We see her viewing a hologram of herself with Baby Cade and Cole Skywalker, and yes, she is still romantically involved. They're having to remind us here with Morlish Veed, the the regent at this point. We then jump to the planet Bastion, where we see Mara CFL, who has been rescued as of the previous arc, talking with Hogram Chalk. And I don't think we ever knew this before, but Hogram Chalk is apparently her uncle. Yeah. Um, because her mother, uh, Elia, who is apparently Hapen, I don't think we knew that before, or her name before either, um, yep. was his sister. And essentially, they're talking about what comes next. And we move to essentially a funeral for the Imperial Knights who died on Agamar during that surprise attack. And they're also honoring Antares Draco, who they believe is dead. Because as you may recall, he went in undercover as a member of the One Sith to save Mara CFL. She got out of there, but he was captured and is still being held by Lord Havoc, a.k.a. Eshgar Nin, who used to be an Imperial Knight, but was the one that betrayed them and killed Elia the Queen uh, in the first place. And speaking of which, that jumps us to... Korriban, where we see Antares Draco being tortured by Lord Havoc, trying to get information uh, about where the Jedi uh, Hidden Temple is and what is the distribution of forces. You know, all the kind of stuff that you would want to know if you were planning on attacking, quote-unquote, the good guys as the one Sith. But he's not breaking, at least not yet. Which finally brings us to a confrontation on Coruscant. Uh, It is now, by the way, 138 years after A New Hope rather than 137. That was where we left off as the previous arcs were going through. So it's a series that is now, with all of its issues, really only lasted a little over a year, about a year and a half when it's all said and done. But a ship arrives bringing Crate and Darth Nil and Darth Talon and his Sith troopers that he has developed in secret all back to Coruscant. And we wind up with this massive uh, battle between the, the Guardian Sith who have, who are trying to stop Crate from getting to the temple uh, and Crate's allies. Until finally, Crate stands before Weirlock and we get a confrontation between the two. Uh, and Crate, by the way, looks a little different now. He doesn't have the Yuzhan Vong armor thing anymore because that was the growth that was coming out of him and that is now gone from his system. So he's wearing sort of regular body armor that has the appearance of certain aspects of Sith... Of, uh, a Sith mixed with Yuzhan Vong type of looks, but he very much looks differently. His face is uncovered and so forth, except for his tattoos. And he winds up in this massive attack against Weirlock, and Weirlock thinks he's got the advantage using different visions and different words about Asherod Het, a.k.a. Lord Crate's past against him. But just as Weirlock is about to deliver a final blow, it turns out, I've become so much more than you can know, traitor. This is not your trap. It is mine. And it is time you died, says Crate. And he stabs two lightsabers, a green Jedi one that he's been bearing apparently since he was a, uh, 
a Jedi, and then a red Sith lightsaber directly through the chest of Darth, of, uh, Darth Weirlock. So Weirlock is dead. He's ready to take the throne again. Uh, Veed will no longer need to be regent, so he's taking over direct control. Veed is simply a regular Grand Admiral once again. But Crate has had sort of a new vision of what he wants to do. Uh, he says, Once I thought to bring peace and order to the galaxy through the existing governments, to align the worlds to the rule of the one Sith. That cannot work. The galaxy must experience the pain of death and the rapture of rebirth as I have. I will bring chaos. It is time for war. So war feeds into his plans, and it's just going to make the one Sith all the more powerful, perhaps, as we end issue number one. Mm -hmm. Man, there's so many things that I wrote down, little things that jumped up. Like, when we first had that first vision, you know, I was immediately like, what did Murr say to Crate? I couldn't think about what it was. We do get an answer towards that, I, th I believe, in issue five or six. So we did come back on that. Uh, you know, I love the fact that, that Crate is hate. <laughs> Crate is hate. I love the fact that Crate is Asherard Het. Uh, you know, and, and like you said, we see that green lightsaber. So that's also factoring into everything he's doing. But I get back to that aspect of, you know, shouldn't Cade be worried about the quickness and ease that his vision is telling him he is going to be taken over by the Sith? Like, like he definitely feels like he's on a path to kill Crate or be killed. And he feels like the Force is definitely pushing him that way. And for the first time ever, he seems to be okay with that, which is, which is weird. Uh, you mentioned Warlock sending his daughter away. I found that was pretty interesting. Like, I was like, whoa, is this like a future plot that was unfulfilled? Or is this just a father protecting his child? Either way, I thought it was kind of cool for the Warlock character. Uh, you know, uh, you had mentioned the fact that Warlock talks to Strife. Strife's response was one of those great moments in dialogue where he's like, Might decides. I will follow the victor. It is the way of the Sith. And when that scene goes down and Warlock gets stabbed through the chest, he falls into Strife's arms and holds on to his cape. And when he dies, Strife just lets him full on drop and is like, I'm with, I'm with you, Crate. Like, he's like, I'll do what I need to do. Um, the other thing, too, is, you know, we mentioned the fact that we find out that Chalk is Hapen. And I was thinking about the fact, you know, a, he's brutally scarred. Okay, so you think about Hapens and their society and how beauty is something, you know, that that's one of the mainstays of their culture. To be him, to be so brutally just destroyed by his service as an Imperial Knight, like, that's got to be an interesting story in and of itself. And yet, he's a character that, as the story arc goes along, I kind of felt like he was a bad guy who got away with everything. So when we get to the end of that in, in next episode, I'll touch more on that. Uh, but again, back to Bastin. It's the new Coruscant of Legends, which is another thing that I love about it. Like, you know, I, I kind of hope that Bastion becomes another strong point for the new Empire and the new canon, because that was one of the coolest things that Zahn brought in was the, the idea of Bastion being this war world, you know, this this bunkered planet that no one could really get to, like the, the last redoubt of the Empire kind of thing. So I like the fact that, you know, we keep going back to that and getting to see all that kind of stuff. Uh I always kind of too. I hope that we would always see Jag become the Empire. The Empire. I'd always hope to see Jagged Fell become the Emperor. You know, we talked about sort of the Jedi was going to be the book that 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 was potentially going to happen in because when we were in Crucible, we see Jag turn away from the role. You know, he marries Jaina, which we knew was going to happen, 
But then he, he steps away from his role as being emperor when he should have just solidified it at that moment. You know, there was that promise that there was more stories to come. The idea was that, you know, well, maybe it was Jaina that started, you know, that Imperial Knights. At one point, I remember thinking when I was reading uh, Legacy of the Force or Fate of the Jedi, thinking, you know, maybe it was Coran Horn. Maybe Coran's like, you know what? Screw the Alliance. I'm just going to go off and do something in the Imperial Remnant. But no, we never got that story. So that was always one of those things that I was hoping to get more of. But again, this comic seeds things back to that because we see, you know, one of the fell the fell ships, Roan Fell's flagship is the Jagged Fell. Uh, you know, he's the third emperor. So there's all these tie-ins to that. But the fact that we find out that Sia's mom is from Hapes, that one got me thinking, like, oh my god, do we have some possible solo on solo DNA going on here? I mean, <laughs> that's not right, right? I mean, that can't be right. You've got Jaina's line potentially meeting up with Jason's line and having Sia. Like uh, is it, am I wrong thinking that, that somewhere along the line that we may have an ancestral coupling here? Yeah, because that would never happen in Star Wars. Never. Right? Never. <laughs> um, I think this first issue does a very good job of just setting up what comes next, but there's not a whole lot I can think of really to say about it, aside from two points that all kind of get wrapped up in the last few pages. Uh, otherwise, again, it is set up, and I do like the fact, I would say, so I guess three things. I like the fact that as we learn here about... Um, the, the Hapen ancestry of Sia's mother, and a little bit more about, you know, how Hogram Chalk is her uncle. Uh, I like the fact that we're getting it organically. It comes out of that conversation. Um, there's a part of me that wants all the information at once. You know, give me a visual guide that gives me everything at once and shows me all these connections so that I can piece mm. it together. But there is something to be said for revealing it naturally within a story and not just dumping it as part of the exposition. And in this yeah. case... We learn more about it. I mean, it's taken us this entire time. It's going to take us until this series, I think, to learn the name of the queen. Because I don't think we'd ever seen the name previously. Um, so it's one of those things that we got bits and pieces and now we know more about it. And this series is not only closing up loose ends as far as where the stories were going, but also some of the things that were just hanging over questions from uh, before the series technically started. Mm -hmm. The two other things that come out, though, all come back to this whole idea of Weirlock versus Crate. And one thing that stands out to me is Weirlock, I don't know what got into Weirlock's head to make him think he was the badass that he thinks that he is. Right? Because Weirlock has, <laughs> Weirlock has always struck me as basically he's a Sith version, and he's even the same species, uh, Chagrian, as Masamita. And mm. you wouldn't imagine Masamita standing next to Palpatine with the idea that if Palpatine ever died, Masamita takes over and he's going to be the badass now. Um, no. Basically, you're a glorified administrator um, granted, in this case, Weirlock has Sith abilities, but he really doesn't ever do a whole hell of a lot within the series other than standing around giving orders um, or hiding Crate being dead. I mean, his big claim to fame is when he has his moment of, you know, force lightning zapping an already dying Crate to supposedly kill him. Um, it's just one of those things where I'm like, you know, maybe maybe his whole thing here isn't that he thinks he can stand up to Crate. And intends to actually kill Crate and maintain control so much as it's his only option. He knows Crate's mm -hmm. coming for him, so might as well man up and do it. But I don't know. That that fight and, and it's funny because I feel like that fight to some degree goes on longer than the final fight between Cade and Crate. The Cade and Crate one feels like in later in the series it goes much quicker. Um, because it's more mm -hmm. psychological than it is physical. But speaking of the psychological side, that's the second thing. What he does, what Weirlock does is basically he's driving Crate to his knees, grabbing his head, you know, because of, of the trauma. 
by bringing up his past. And the way it goes is like this. He says, You are strong, Lord Crate, but I know who you are, who you were, and where your weaknesses lie. I know your story. I know how you remember your past, your illustrious father's death. The loss of the one you loved. The death of the Jedi Order. Your torture at the hands of the Yuuzhan Vong. Your death by my hand. How you cling to your past. How you cling to your pain. It defines you. It reveals you. For generations, the Weirlocks served you. Kept you alive. Served as your voice when your physical frailties forced you into stasis. We hid your weaknesses. What do you know of me? Of my desires and plans? Nothing! I kept my own counsel and I waited. I am greater than you ever expected. And you are so much less than you believed yourself to be. But I'm sitting here thinking, is the idea that all these things from his past are going to depress the crap of him or make him feel like a failure or that he'll just be reduced to tears? Because this guy's a Sith. He feeds on the kind of crap that happened here. All the stuff that he's talking mm-hmm. about were steps on the path to making him into Darth Crate. If I were Crate, I would be sitting there. I'd be more like, look at it this way. Anakin's mom dies at the hands of Tusken Raiders. He's crying. He will eventually be so emotionally distraught that he breaks down with Padme. But in the instant of feeling it, he goes ape guano and mm-hmm. kills an entire village of Tusken Raiders. It feeds his rage. So it feels like this is backfiring because I don't really get what Weirlock's trying to do here. If he's trying to drive into an emotional peak of depression or just breaking down, Crate's never seemed like that kind of character to me. It seems like all he's doing is feeding the rage and asking for it. Um, so yeah, it makes me wonder, did Weirlock think there was any chance of getting through this? And what exactly did he think he was trying to do when trying to use the psychological breakdown type tactic against Crate? And it just lends credence to me to this idea, you know, because Crate's on the ground, he's got his hands on his head like, but then he says, you know, I've become so much more than you know, blah, 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 and kills him. So it makes me think that Crate falling to the ground at all under the psychological assault is a feint. To draw Weirlock in close enough to kill him. That when he's, because he looks like, when his hands are on his head, and it's it's, it's a really weird looking shot because it's got like um, his hair kind of falling down in front of his face. It's kind of a creepy looking shot of Crate. It's it's a force illusion. That's what I came with. That that he was creating an illusion for Weirlock to see of that? That's that's very possible. That is very possible. I I don't know. I just, Weirlock just, nah, dude. No. No, he picked you as vice president to get enough votes from your part of the country, bro. <laughs> he doesn't ever expect you to actually be president, man. I'm sorry, you're not qualified. I just gotta say, when you were reading Warlock's lines for that, all I was hearing was Littlefinger. And I was just like, oh my god, this is great. Cause, <laughs> exactly. Because, I mean, that's kind of how he feels. Like, like he's thinking he's plotting and planning and doing all this stuff. And, you know, you watch Krayt drop to the ground like like everything that Warlock's putting on him is having an effect. And then, like you said, you know, he puts his hands up there, even his tattoos have withered. Like he looks older than ever before. And it's, it's almost like he's withering under the assault of Warlock's words. And then as you had said, you know, he's, I become so much more than you can possibly know, traitor. This is not your trap. It is mine. And it's time. So it's like in that moment, like you can even see his face looks back to normal again. It looks more, more 60 than 90 right like it's like the illusion is dropped and in this moment he strikes and when you look in the striking he looks even more healthy and virile in that image than any other one it's like all of a sudden like everything just dropped away you're like oh my god like i thought that was cool but i 
yeah, for those listening, like I, I totally think you totally did little finger there on purpose. I don't know if you consciously did that, but that was awesome. Uh, another little thing that jumped out was the Imperial Knights holding their remembrance ceremony. You had mentioned it, but what I found was really interesting is that there's these crystals that they're charging with the force. I thought that was a really interesting concept, especially considering now with canon, like they're really pushing the whole concept of crystals being, you know, part of the metaphysical and part of the the force side of the mystic and all that. So I'm like, oh, that was kind of cool. Uh, you mentioned Draco being tortured. The, one of the ways that he was being tortured is there's like glass and metal shards like floating around him, constantly spinning around his body and slicing into him, which was cool. And his master... Like, he's such a professional at this that he literally isn't just, like, lightly healing him. He's like, dunk him into Bacta. I want these heals. I want him healed up perfectly whole. We're going to do this all over again. Like, he's, like, seriously going for broke with this guy. Another one was you mentioned the fact that we've gone into that eighth year. And I thought it was kind of interesting because, you know, at this point, we watched Coruscant go from the jewel of the galaxy to a toxic wasteland. You know, it's a polluted shadow of war oppressed world in eight years. I mean, that's, that's an interesting thing. And another one that jumped out to me, and I wasn't sure if you had caught it and you had read past it without mentioning it, so I'm going to go back to it. It's right during the scene where it's basically like Lord Krayt's version of Nightfall, though I guess we could call it Sithfall, where he's showing up. We see from uh, Warlock as it's kind of more his point of view as Krayt and his version of the one Sith are coming for him. It's the word bubbles. He goes, you know, I remember the day Order 66 was given. I remember others here when this was the Jedi Temple intent on death as I am intent on death. Now, what's interesting here is that for the first time in the way Cray is speaking, the word bubbles are entirely black with a hint of light in the center. And I, it's almost like it's giving that, that feeling of like when Palpatine or Mother Talzin would speak and they'd have that echoing in their voice. Like, I wasn't sure if like that was something intentional to, to imply that he's more powerful now because it was a very interesting, subtle shift in the word bubbles all of a sudden. And of course, you know, that's when you also start seeing more of the Sith troopers and they have that very Mandalorian look. Uh, so I thought that was kind of interesting as well. But. Uh, back to that dialogue, there's that moment where they're talking back and forth, and Craig goes, You betrayed me, Lord Warlock. Of all who followed me, you were the closest. And Warlock's like, I behaved as any Sith would, as a Sith should, killing his master. I offered no apology. I would accept none. Begin. And you're right. Like The battle between these two is almost more bombastic between Cade and Crate himself, but I think that this is unique in the aspect of there are very few times where we see Darksider on Darksider action, and usually when we do, it's it's one is really powerful and the other one's kind of like an up-and-comer. Like, this is the first time where we have two Sith Lords that are basically at the height of their power, and one of them being the Lord of the Sith. So, like, I, I don't know. For me, that was a really cool dynamic to see that. It was a brutal fight. I mean, you know, they're throwing Sith lightning at each other, you got the rocks going back and forth. Like, there's so many things happening on that that it just, I don't know. It really was kind of cool. But one thing that I have to ask you at the very end of this, you know, we get that moment where they're sitting. Does it look like crates going onto a ship? Cause I mean, it, it doesn't really look like he's in a throne room. It almost looks like he's in the bridge of a ship with the others sitting around him. And he goes, once I thought to bring peace and order the galaxy. You know, when he says that, ta- that part about aligning everything, and what's interesting is when we get to the end of this, what Darth Nil does seems more in line with what crate originally thought than what he does later. And I found that was kind of interesting in and of itself. It's kind of like, he had plans for the Sith, but he didn't tell him his full plans. So Nil, he's following the first plan and has no clue really about what's going on with the second plan. So when the second plan starts falling through, Nil jumps back to the original plan, or at least that's so it seems. 
So, okay, so four things I think it is. Uh, I think that's the same throne that we see in Broken. I think it's just this idea that it's sort of this open area. But, yeah, it's kind of a weird ah. location for the throne. Um, when you said Darksider on Darksider action, I'm thinking, great. So now the next time they do an anthology, <laughs> like, from a certain point of view, it'll be Sith deciding that they need to have themselves some sexual relations to improve someone's uh, career standing. Um, I do think that, yes, oh. it does. I, the, the Littlefinger thing was not intentional, but I could totally see that. Thank goodness Darth Crate doesn't have any daughters for uh, Weirlock to want to bang. Um, and your comment there about uh, the, the idea that maybe it's sort of a Sith voice, like a Mother Towson or Palpatine kind of thing, where it's almost like the Sith echo behind it. Uh, it, it could go the opposite direction because it could sound like Mother Townsend in a different way, and it's more like this time those screams will be from my own children. The one Sith, those who stand with the usurper, die with him. The path is opened by blood. Ah ah ah, which would be kind of Townsend esque too. This is true. And go right this along with your reference to cookies. <laughs> Oh my god oh that's so perfect speaking of perfect now is the perfect time for us to tell you about our sponsor that's right voyage across the star wars galaxy with tops in an all-new trading card collection tops journey to star wars the last jedi the 110 base storyline cards take you on a journey across the star wars saga with a sneak peek at star wars the last jedi you can collect stickers character cards illustrated cards and more the Last Jedi product includes autographs from over 30 actors and characters. You can pick up your trading cards by visiting tops.com today. In fact, the journey to Star Wars The Last Jedi line has been available for purchase on tops.com since September 1st. We got those 110 story cards that I mentioned already, but you can also get that sneak peek to The Last Jedi. There are cards featuring the iconic 1977 blue Starfield design, so if you're into that old classic look, that retro look, this is for you. We got sketch cards, hand-drawn rendering, of Star Wars characters from across the saga and plastic emblem cards featuring heroes, villains from the Star Wars Last Jedi that are also included. You can also get other eras because Tops they cover it all. In fact, the saga will continue in Tops trading cards with Star Wars The Last Jedi coming out this December. This product will, of course, feature characters and scenes from the upcoming film. And I'll be honest, one of the things I like about the cards with the autographs is you know it's a legitimate autograph. Uh, that's part of why, for the longest time, I've collected autographed copies of books and comics by people who wrote them, because usually you don't see people forging signatures of those people. But man, you try to go on somewhere like eBay and find yourself a signed thing by, I don't know, Harrison Ford, uh, by Daisy Ridley, whatever, you have no idea most of the time if those signatures are legit and it doesn't take someone who's a master forger to fake something when there are so many legit signatures out there. So if you want to make sure it actually is a legit signature, one of the best ways to do it, if you're not actually at a convention getting it yourself where you can see it done, is something like these Tops cards where you can actually get autographed cards that you know are legitimate. Uh, that, to me, is, is probably one of the best benefits of this type of card line because those chase cards... I love the chase cards in general. I think they're pretty cool, all the different types of them. But those autograph cards especially um, are a great way to get signatures that you know are legit. And that's worth the money to me. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I also like is Tops takes a lot of fandom artists. Like uh, uh, Ben, I, Ben, I'm not going to be able to say your last name because it's really cool looking. Uh, but Ben, you know who you are. You hooked me up with Ahsoka and you've done some really cool stuff for Tops. Uh, Michael Cohen's done some stuff. Like there have been a lot of people that I follow on Facebook that, bam, there's their cards in Tops. And I'm like, holy cow, like that's pretty cool. People that I would not have really associated with Tops and they're 
able to bring in their cars, do their thing. And there's a lot of talented people out there in our fandom. So it's really cool that Tops is able to help out with the fandom while we help out with them. So again, thank you, Tops, for sponsoring us and the Star Wars Report, the Second Airborne, all the shows that you've been sponsoring. It's really cool. And speaking of thanks, guess who doesn't get any? Darth Crate. As we move into issue number two, uh, where we find out that basically uh, resistance has stiffened in the wake of the poisoning of Dak, which again was by Weirlock's hand, not Crate's. Uh, we find that ships and volunteers are flocking to Garstasi and to the Imperial Remnant. Um, the Huts have basically uh, all but openly joined the fight after what happened at Dasucha. Again, something Weirlock has done. The Guardians of Kifu and Kifex are refusing to allow a base there. Uh, the Chiss and the Hapens are both remaining neutral. Um, but there have been some new attacks since the last issue where planets are starting to sort of learn not to defy Crate. But a lot of what Weirlock did has solidified basically a lot of anger against the Sith Imperials or the Sith Empire, and now uh, the ones that they're kind of reeling from that. Uh, so we move from finding out about that in a report from Morlish Veed to Crate, which is, of course, spied upon by Nina Calixta, a.k.a. Morrigan Cord, to a battle over the planet Falene, in which the, the uh, Sith Imperial Star Destroyer Darklight is under attack by the Minoc and uh, by Rogue Squadron and whatnot from the uh, uh, Alliance Remnant, where they basically get aboard the ship and destroy it, but in the process, Cade sends a message through the holonet, or a holographic message, to Crate, which we learn the contents of at uh, the end of the story. We find that uh, there is fighting going on on the planet Borosk, and it's not necessarily going well. Uh, Rowanfell's Imperial Knights are fighting against the Sith Imperials and are forced to uh, pull back. And this kind of retreating fight is something that's causing Emperor Rowanfell to consider other possible alternatives for winning the war. Because it turns out that they've gotten Darth Malady as a prisoner. Um, there was a, she was on a dying Yuzhan Vong ship uh, after the last time that we saw her trying to get away, and she has been captured now by Rowanfell and his Imperials. And basically, she seems like she's sort of a mental case at this point, that what what Cade did and sort of getting into her mind has left her partially mad, as if she wasn't to a degree already. But she yeah. basically says, I have uh, Alpha Red, right? Going back to the Alpha Red and Alpha Blue type stuff from Legends. Um, I have Alpha Red, which is this deadly substance uh, designed as sort of a targeted bioweapon, but I've improved it into what's referred to as Omega Red, not, I guess, to be... Isn't that the name of Wolverine's Soviet yes. enemy with the tentacles? Yes. Um, but I've turned <laughs> it into Omega Red, which is now basically going to be able to wipe out all species. And she's willing to hand out to Rowan Fell to use against Coruscant or Korriban or both to wipe out the one Sith once and for all. All she wants in return is the head of Cade Skywalker. And... At the moment, at least, Rowan is not willing to contemplate this, but Hogram Chalk is still kind of standing at his side, whispering in his ear about, you know, there was a point where you said that no weapon was too foul to use against the Sith, so maybe? Um, but for now, they're going to keep this a secret. Uh, essentially have it be there as a possible thing to use, but hopefully not have to use it. Um, we wind up then continuing on. We see a scene in which Garstasi is vouching for Cade um, when speaking... Uh, with the Huts, um, Cade has already gotten a communication back while they were on that Star Destroyer from Nina Calixta, basically saying we need to meet um, to provide some information. We find out shortly after the meeting that Hogram Chalk is apparently a traitor, 
Yeah. And he's, and he's providing information to Morlish V. That kind of came out of nowhere. Um, but okay. And in doing so, this is how Morlish Veed finds out that Nina Calixta is actually the enemy, essentially. Um, and that is going to allow him to finally do something about it. So later that night at Calixta's apartment, we have Morlish Veed coming in. He's claiming that they're celebrating. Oh, hey, we found out that Conrad Russ, the guy over the Imperial mission, uh, he's actually the traitor. <laughs> and as she tries to drink to it, uh, she drinks a drink that has been poisoned. And he turns on her. He says, you know, yes, darling, I know that you're Rodenfell's spy. You're a traitor to the Empire and to me. And in the scuffle that ensues, during which he calls her a shutta, which the comic identifies as something that is a bad slang term used against Twilight women. So <laughs> guess what that might mean? Um, he's <laughs> shooting at her with his blaster as she jumps from the railing or falls from the railing, having grabbed a pack. And at this point, we don't actually know what that pack is. We'll find that out in the next issue. And she appears to fall to her death in a scene similar to the cover of that issue where she's falling, shooting upwards as she's falling, being shot at as she's falling with the pack gripped in the other hand. Um, and this is the point at which news finally reaches her ex-husband, uh, Rolf Yeag, right? And it turns out that Gunnar Yeag, who of course is Rolf and Nina's daughter, which makes her the half-sister of Cade Skywalker. I right? gotta keep all these family relations connected. Uh, Gunner is actually at the point where she's trying to, to finally find the courage to tell Rolf, look, I now know that Mom is actually also Morrigan Cord, that Cade Skywalker is my half-brother. Like she's, trying, she's about to reveal this only to walk in when he's getting the message that she was a traitor and she's dead. And Veed is, is playing it off as, look, you know, I'm going to pretend that I actually believe that you didn't know about this because otherwise I'd have to execute you too and so forth. Um, not so good, but it's interesting that Gunner doesn't get a chance to have that conversation beforehand. And it won't be until later that they, that, uh, he realized that she knew a lot more than she ever let on. That then moves us back to. To poor Draco Antares, who of course is being tortured, except now he's being tortured with Force Visions. And he sees a vision basically of Eshkar Nin as Havoc on the moment when he, apparently, I'm assuming this is based on history, um, he turned on Elia, the queen, and cut her down and how he failed to save her. Um, and as he's sort of groveling on the floor or down on the floor, an illusion of Corbin dungeons with you. Havoc, and he's just, just kind of out of it. He brings in what appears to be Maricia Fell, uh, looking as she did while she was captive, and she kisses him. And he's completely believing that this must be Maricia Fell, and Havoc threatens to kill her. You know, give me something worth knowing, or she dies. And the only thing that seems stronger than, than Draco's loyalty to the Empire is his loyalty and love for Maricia Fell. And of course, here, this is where it winds up breaking him, and he reveals that the Jedi have a hidden temple on Tavas, T-A-I-V-A-S, and that is finally a thank, you know, that my former apprentice earns you a measure of oblivion, and he gets force zapped into unconsciousness, and it turns out that no, of course, that wasn't Maris CFL, that was a force illusion being projected, apparently, um, over Darth Talon, and Talon reports this new information to Crate, and Crate is ready. Uh, for a final assault, we find 
Uh, he says, uh, when I called to the one Sith through the force, I felt Skywalker's presence. As much as the boy believes he walked in the light, darkness still shrouds him. Find him, Talon. I want to open a path for Skywalker that will lead to me. Find him and make him a gift of your broken Imperial Knight. So they're going to return Antares Draco. And we find, a, find out finally what Cade's message was, which was, Crate, I'm coming for you. I'm going to kill you, Crate. Whatever you do to the galaxy doesn't matter. You're going to die. Once and for all, guaranteed. And we get an inkling again at the end of the issue, just like in the first one, of Crate's sort of master plan, in which he says, Death is not an ending, boy, but it is a passageway to something greater. It is something you too must experience, Cade Skywalker, for I have had a vision. You will bend, you will break, and you will serve at my side. But first... You must die. As we end issue numero dos. (laughs) Man, there are so many things. Okay, so you mentioned that Warlock was the one that initiated the campaign of terror, which, of course, you know, since you said that, I have to believe you because you pay more attention to the details. Actually, actually, no, I guess guess the poisoning of Dak, that was actually Crate. But I guess because Crate died so soon thereafter, perhaps, that that was why... Uh, Weirlock is being blamed because it it does you know they, they're saying it as if Weirlock did it right the traitor Weirlock's ill-advised campaign of terror has backfired resistance stiffened in the wake of the poisoning of the planet Dak unless it's the fact that remember Crate was the one who said he wants to wipe out uh, or put the Mon Calamari into work camps and it was Crate or Weirlock who finally just said release the bioweapon to kill everyone so I'm assuming that's uh-huh. where they're going with this they're, it's more that extremes that final arc of the regular series they're referring to not the original terror campaign against the Mon Cala that was started by Crate back in uh, Wrath of the Dragon but yeah well, you, can, you can argue that it's a little bit of, of both because people were already reacting negatively to that happening before the biotoxin actually wound up killing so many. Yeah. Well, that that's where I kept thinking. I was like, I'm like, wait, but wasn't this all part of Crate's plan? Like, is is he just letting Warlock be the fall guy, which is brilliant in and of itself. Look, it's just, uh, it's just like right now, right? We have a Republican in the White House, which means that when it comes to anything going wrong in Afghanistan or Iraq, it has nothing to do with Bush. It must all have been Obama. And if we, you know, and just like during Obama's time, it all had to be Bush's fault. You always blame the the group that doesn't identify with you as an in, as as a leader for the problems even if you also are part of the problem if it's an ongoing thing to which all sides are blamed just blame the other guy cuz it's true you're just leaving out the fact that you're at fault partially too well speaking of left and right i figured out though Cade's a lefty. He is ambidextrous, but he does favor his left hand with his lightsaber. That's something I've noticed throughout this issue. Uh the other thing that jumps out when we have the scene with the queen. Well, yeah, let me if I can say make a comment to mm-hmm. that. But is he ambidextrous, though? Or I guess he has to be ambidextrous, but is he really sort of left-hand favoring? Because what I'm seeing is most of the time when he carries his lightsaber in his left, he's carrying his blaster in his right. So is it just that he's preferring the blaster and aims better with his right, so right is his dominant hand? And, of course, the bigger question, why does it matter? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) But the other thing, too, we see the vision with the queen, and something jumps out to me that never did before. Literally, as we were talking, as you were talking about that scene, I was looking at it, I realized... She has to be force sensitive and has to be an Imperial Knight. She's wielding Imperial Knight lightsabers. Like, I, I never thought about her also being force sensitive, which again gets back to that whole solo DNA. Like, she comes from Hapes. Like, do you really think Hapes is going to just offer some commoner to the king of the Imperial Arm, uh, you know, the Emperor? No, they're going to give you some royalty, which means we're looking at Alana's, you know, oh my God, so, oh my so- God. So basically, if there was a, a and if thank goodness we didn't have 
a story that actually told us of, you know, the uh, the birth of Maricea and the death of Elia and everything um, outside of flashbacks. If we had just gotten that story, then it probably would have irised out not to, but instead to, pretty much. Uh, see, I made a lot of really weird observations. Like, one, we still have Chiss Clawcraft. And what's great about this is they seem to be the only new Jedi Order era ship to remain relatively unchanged in the hundred years since they were put into service. So I thought that was kind of cool. Uh, you got Cade while he's blowing up ships. His mom contacts him with the rendezvous location. Like, <laughs> it, was, it was a great moment there because he's kind of like, I'm busy. <laughs> so you're like, oh, this is great. How is this going to work out? Uh, getting back to the art, though. The scene with Darth Malady, and, and you mentioned, you know, where she's like, bring me the head of Cade Skywalker. That is an intense, I mean, Jan just earned her money with that. Like, everything about Malady looks real. Like, she looks like somebody who has been suffering and, and at a loss, you know, like, has been stuck in a, in a Vong ship all by herself. Her hair is matted. And, you know, you mentioned the way she talks, but what I found it really interesting is, like, it's not broken like we'll see other characters later, like like Morgan when she's been poisoned, where there's a lot of dot dot dots in between the wording or a lot of commas no she's just talking really weird am i am i not he is in my head you see lord crayt lord crayt lives you know this yes i felt him he seeks me now it i feel it cannot will not go back i desired i wanted i desired i not try to make certain he was dead he will know my mind it would be naked before him i would be unmade like it's really weird she, the way she's talking. She's speaking in the anti-Windig. You see, Windig uses sentence <laughs> fragments. She uses run-on sentences with extra words. She is the anti-Windig. Yeah. Well, and, and then this this is where, you know, we see Chalk do his thing. And this is where I'd, I already started to feel like Chalk was, you know, like he was kind of leaning towards the dark side. But at this moment, when I get there, I'm thinking, oh, this is, this is Fel's redemption. Because he was pushing for, you know, the weapons of mass destruction and stuff. And at this moment, he's like, no, I'm not going to do it. And then Chalk starts working on him, and I'm just like, oh my... And then we see the fact that, you know, he's like, now I've worked myself into this position of security, I can be more help. You're like, oh my god! And as we learn next issue, his plot, he never he never gets caught. Like, he's he gets away with it. Like, that blew my mind. So, you know, we talk about this being a great end cap, but there are a lot of little plot points that still just were left open that I found really interesting in and of itself. Um, there's also a, cre- a great moment, too, where uh, Angent Tilly's is hitting hard on Sin, where I'm like, oh, man, that, that's just hardcore. You, you're going really hardcore for, for Sin. Like, Jiraiya, really, of all people? Like, I don't know. But it's kind of funny. You know, she's just like... If you want the right sentient, you can get almost anything you want, Jariah. Like, oh man, she is not playing around. <laughs> you also mentioned the scene where Cad meets Admiral Garstarzi. And it's a great moment, too, because he goes, This is Admiral Garstarzi of the Galactic Fleet. My fighters can vouch for Skywalker's kill, and I can vouch for my pilots. I trust that would be sufficient, even for a hut. Ho, ho, ho. Legendary Admiral Stasi vouching for the pirate. The galaxy has gone mad. Done. Vito out. And then Cade's like, Vito was messing around. Don't need you to vouch for me. He would have paid up. Yeah, nice to meet you. And you're welcome. I assume we're on the same side. I'm on my side. Usually works out better for me. Yet here we are working together. We've driven off the Sith together. One dance doesn't make us partners, Stazzy. I get my kicks killing Sith for fun and profit. Got nothing to do with you. Look, I get it. You're a stubborn and independent rogue who doesn't deal well with authority figures. Well, neither do I, unless I'm the authority figure. 
but we have common interests. Dead Sith. I have access to intel for Sith who need killing. You have the necessary skills. An alliance could benefit us both. Not unless you got a line on Krayt and a way to get at him. That's what I'm after. Now, what I find interesting about this is as the, the arc progresses, Stasi wants to wipe out all the Sith, but really for Cade, it's all about Krayt. Like, once he's done with that, the rest of the Sith... That's the other side of this that's wide open for me. It's like the Skywalker bloodline seems to always find itself in those pinnacle moments. But Kate's pinnacle moment doesn't have to do with the one Sith per se, but one Sith in particular, the one that created the one Sith. And I question, you know, like, is that really the message he should be coming away with with this? I mean, shouldn't when this is all said and done, shouldn't he be trying to stop all the Sith, not just consider himself mission accomplished? Yeah, but again, this is a guy who's very focused on self. I mean, it really, I mean, even at this point, he's not really embracing the Jedi side to himself. He's still trying to keep that arm's length. Uh, it's, that's, I think, is part of why the final sequence that we get with him battling Krayt in the last issue is such an important moment because it's not just going to be about him taking down Krayt. It's going to have to be about him accepting the Jedi side of himself as the dominant side. Like, that is who he wants to be. I mean, he's sort of, you know, he's sort of leaning that direction, we can see, but he hasn't quite chosen it. Um, I think this issue in particular, the thing that jumps out at me is that it's seeing the resolution of a couple of things that I'd been wanting to see for a long time. I've been wondering when the next shoe was going to drop. And it was always coming down to Nina and her family, uh, or the, the Imperial side, I guess you could say, of the family. And that we've been waiting ever since we really knew that Morrigan Court and Nina Calixti were the same character. And Morrigan, we found out, was helping Cade at times, was Cade's mother. Um, we've been waiting for the moment when Morlish Veed finally figures this out. When she's outed as a traitor and what's going to happen to her. Um, so that was kind of a shock. And the fact that at this point, we don't know at the end of issue number two if she has survived or not. Um, we'll find out in issue number three. And along with that, there was that whole thing of, well, what about Gunner? And what about Rolf, really? Because um, Gunner now knows the truth. And has she told her father? Will she tell her father? How does this affect her and her choices? And we see that play out within this miniseries as well, with this being our first instance of kind of coming back to that and reminding the audience of, hey, she knows, but she hasn't told him. And now she's going to have to deal with it now that Nina is presumed dead and so forth. Um, I thought those were very important to see. And it's something that I like about this series is that this cast got huge yeah. over time, but with the exception of a handful like Hondo Carr, who in a sense got some closure, but not really. Like, he moved on to the next phase of his life. He got a story arc that was concluded, but we always wanted to see what the next step was, what his next arc would be, but we never did. Um, yeah. But in this case, I mean, a lot of these characters are getting their conclusion in this series, and it doesn't really feel like many are left out. So uh, to, find, to be able to make time in a story that is, has this much stuff going on, to be able to address things like Gunner's emotions over the whole situation, I think that was very well done. Um, because I, I wouldn't have wanted to leave that type of thing hanging. It still makes me kind of wonder, you know, what happens afterwards. You know, Gunner, Cade, are they friends or whatever? Um, are they going to come out of it alive, I guess was the question I was asking at the time of issue number two. But uh, good to see that finally come to fruition a little bit. Oh, and isn't it also interesting that at this point in the war... The Chiss Ascendancy and the Hapes Consortium are staying completely out of it. Like, you know, for one, the Empire and the Chiss should be 
allies. So that's interesting. That, I mean, I get from the Chiss point of view, you know, they're, they're calculating. I could see them taking that step back. But the Hapens, you know, the, the reason why they're staying out of it is because they blame Fell for Elijah Chalkfell's death because he was one of, uh, you know, uh, Nin was one of his knights. So they blame him. And the only reason why they're even helping is because of his daughter. I mean, I, that was an interesting... I, I kind of I kept hoping that Legacy Volume Two was going to play more of that up because it kind of seemed like you know Hapes the Hapen area was was going to be doing its own thing. You knew what was going on you know later with Anya Solo and stuff going to Hapes and stuff. Like there was that promise that there was a bigger story to be told over there, and yet we never got that. And I think that was for me that was the issue I had with most of Legacy Volume Two was like this ends so well, yet there were just enough plot points left open that you could come back with vo- Volume Two and wrap those up. And yet it seemed like almost every one of those plot points were left completely untouched. That really bothered me. Voyage Across the Star Wars Galaxy with Tops and an all-new trading card collection, Tops Journey to Star Wars The Last Jedi. That's right, Tops Journey to Star Wars The Last Jedi has 110 base storyline cards that take you on a journey across the Star Wars saga with a sneak peek at Star Wars The Last Jedi. You can collect stickers, you can collect character cards, illustrated cards, and more. The Last Jedi product includes autographs from over 30 actors and characters. You can pick up your trading cards by visiting Tops.com today. And also check out the Star Wars Card Trader app. You can get your very own piece of the Star Wars Galaxy with Top Star Wars Card Trader. Collect and trade officially licensed digital trading cards from 1997 to Star Wars The Last Jedi. Unlock exclusive content and original artwork. Chase relic and signature cards. Interact with fans around the world. And relive all the galactic adventures of almost 40 years of Star Wars in the first ever Star Wars digital trading card experience. Users can open free packs every day, get coins and awards just for signing in, and access daily card releases. This is the app every Star Wars collector should have, especially if you're into Topps cards. Start amassing your collection today. Download Star Wars Card Trader free now at the App Store or Google Play. That, of course, brings us to issue number three, uh, where we get to start out the issue uh, at the Hidden Temple on Tybus with Nat Skywalker, a.k.a. Bantha Rock, as apparently played by Sam Elliott. Um, notice the facial hair there. It's got to be <laughs> Sam Elliott. Uh, you're a special kind of stupid. Um, for those who don't know who Sam Elliott is, that at least is the meme that you can think of. Um, and he's basically reactivating as an actual Jedi Knight. Um, and he's telling this to his wife, Drew, who, of course... Uh, is among the guardians, so yeah. Her, also reactivated. Right, I thought that her was commission interesting. Commission is reactivated. Um, their oldest child, um, Anna, she is with her unit in a time of war now. So it's sort of sending that family in goodness knows what directions it's going to go in. And we see that Nat has, and I guess we could call him Nat instead of Bantha now at this point because he really is sort of taking back his old identity. Um, has a yellow lightsaber, which I thought was kind of cool, uh, reminiscent of, of course, what. Uh, Kyle Katarn got from Yun, for instance, back in Jedi Knight Dark Forces 2. Um, so we move forward from there to the wheel. And the wheel is in a state of disrepair, basically. Um, uh, ever since the last time they were there, uh, it's under new management, basically, and it's kind of a mess. And as they're sitting there waiting and waiting and waiting, in comes, finally, per the transmission in the last issue, Nina Calixta. She is indeed alive, and they don't recognize her at first. Uh, at least not as Morrigan Korg. Je- uh, 
yeah, Jariah Sim uh, actually pulls a blaster and sticks it to the side of her head. And it takes her taking off the the thing that she wears, the necklace she wears, and showing the hollow of her, Cole, and baby Cade to convince them that, yes, she is who she says she is. Because what we're going to find here is that she was actually Morrigan Court as an Imperial agent first. The Nina Calixti uh, identity she made, the persona she made, that was the creation. Morrigan was indeed the original her. Um, and she's been... Pretty injured. She's somewhat healed. She's managed to get um, back to her ship. Basically, the pack that she had had a jet pack in it. That was why she grabbed it in the first place, so she was able to put it on, fly herself to safety without Veed realizing that she'd flown herself to safety, got back to her ship, used some back to patches to, to heal any blaster wounds, but the poison is still working in her body, so she is going to die if Cade won't help. And Cade is kind of at this point not sure if he can do this. Not sure if he can, not sure if he wants to. Because he has, it costs him. He has to dig into the dark side to do it every time, it seems. Um, and in each case where he's healed someone before, like Delia Blue, he was able to heal her um, because he loves her intensely. And there's that love connection. But he doesn't have any love for his mother at this point. Um, he'd have to impose his will on the Force. Like in, in healing Delia Blue, he didn't have to touch the dark side. It's the one time he didn't have to because of that love connection, because the light side actually was what was imbuing his abilities. But it wouldn't be the light side this time, or at least he doesn't think so, and he's not willing to do that for her. Interestingly, immediately the ghost, the force ghost of Cole Skywalker shows up and asks him to do it for her, for him, not for her. Uh, do it because you love me and I still love her, he says. Um, mm -hmm. And it's interesting because... Real quick. Yeah. Real quick, this one plays out so much better if it's red. Why don't you go back and you play the role of Cade when he talks about healing cost me? Go from there and I'll come in as Cole. Because I actually I okay. read this to my wife last night and I got really I got a, a huge emotional charge out of this whole interaction. Okay, then. So, all right, taking Cade's part. So when Cade is talking to Nina, who's wanting help, he says, healing cost me. Gone to the dark side to do it every time but one. Heal blue in the light side, but I love Delia intensely, and she loves me. I got no love for you. Get it? To heal you, I'd have to impose my will on the Force. Go to the dark side, and I won't do that. Not for you. Then heal her for me, son. Do it because you love me, and I still love her. Poison's all through her. For way too long. There's too many shatter points, all tangled up and twisted in her. You've healed yourself often enough from the poison of death sticks. You've always asked too much, Dad. Never more than you could do, son. <sighs> Chubba, Dad. You win. I'll try. And he starts healing her with, you know, you got the full force lightning looking thing as he's healing the shatter points. He says, can't keep remembering all she's done. She abandoned us, destroyed our lives. I can't help the anger, Dad. One of the greatest lessons of the light side is forgiveness. Through it, we find redemption. Your anger hurts you, Cade, more than it has ever hurt her. Let it go. I have. I forgive you, my love. And what's really cool is at this moment, he is leaning over her as her eyes are closed. And her eyes open. And now we've already established that Cade's force visions no one else can see. And yet she looks up towards the direction where Cole's head is and goes, Cole? And he goes on, you cannot hear me, darling. Feel what I say. Know that I love you always and forever. And what's really cool about this moment is Cole's spirit puts one hand on Cade's left shoulder and the other one on Nina's head as 
Cade's healing and it, it works. Cade reaches over then and grabs that hologram that's got the picture of all of them and he holds it up. And I mean, this, this panel, this one panel of mm-hmm. Cade Skywalker holding that left hand up with it tightening a fist with one tear streaking down. I forgive you, mom. Like that was, oh my God, that was such an impactful moment. And it's one of those panels that, uh, that th- there are moments where Jan Dersima's artwork feels painted as opposed to traditional comic artwork, because the details and the realism just get that much deeper, and that's one of those shots. So mm-hmm. he's he, he has healed her. We actually don't realize at the time, because um, she's just laying there, and then he picks up the holo and looks at it and says he forgives her, but we actually don't know in that moment that she's alive. Um, it takes us seeing her later in the story to realize, oh, it actually worked, because I think my initial impression here was that it didn't work, and she passed away, but she passed away having had forgiveness. But that's not actually what's happening. Um, so it did mm-hmm. kind of leave me wondering, especially the fact that when he says, I forgive you, he's got a tear on it uh, coming down from one eye, which to me suggested that, she, that he had forgiven her, but it was too late. She had passed as opposed to it just being the emotional rampage within him to be willing to forgive. Um, at that point, we are back at the Minox docking bay a matter of hours later. And in comes Darth Talon. <laughs> the first thing she says is, truce! And... <laughs> Um, you know, they don't immediately, you know, go into any kind of truce. They wind up fighting her briefly uh, until, um, she winds up basically getting knocked out, but she says, you know, hey, there's something in the ship for you. And turns out that what's in the ship is Antares Draco. Um, of course, Cade is incredibly angry, uh, at him because he confesses to having told the Sith where the hidden temple is, but of course there's no time. To take it out on Draco, they need to warn the temple of what is coming. Which jumps us to the Sith Temple on Coruscant, to Darth Krayt's war room, where they're figuring out the battle plan. And we get a hint here that not all is as it seems, because you've basically got a Sith Imperial fleet that's going to attack the Hidden Temple, but Krayt is holding all of his new Sith starfighters and Sith warriors essentially in reserve, use the first attack to draw in the Galactic Alliance and then spring a trap by sending in his other forces um, to then come at them from the essentially from the other side. Um, and he thinks that this is going to be the victory that finally brings the galaxy to heal. We then jump back you know, to the Hidden Temple where we have Marcia Fell receiving Antares Draco, uh, kind of dressing him down for what he did, but at the same time recognizing that what he did, he did for her. Um, and she's willing to give him a chance to reclaim his honor and prove himself worthy of being an Imperial Knight, despite what all has transpired. We then move to the briefing room where Gar Stasi and Rowan Fell are talking with the, the assembled Jedi and Cade and his team, uh, basically about what to do next. And the initial thought of the Jedi is, we need to either get the heck out of here, or at least get the younglings the heck out of here. But Cade realizes that essentially... Um, this could be another osis if they don't handle it right. This could be a slaughter of the Jedi and wiping out what's left of them. Instead, what they need to do is dig in, use the fact that the whole reason they chose the place was because it was sort of a natural fortress, and use that to draw in the Empire, the Sith Empire, and essentially take them out. Um, Just hide the younglings and basically dig in, essentially. And they sort of come up with this plan of, okay, so if we're going to do that, how is this going to wind up working? And Cade still intends on him being the one to go after Crate. And he makes the comment uh, that basically he wants, and everybody wants Crate dead, but if they let Tavis become another Osis, that'll never happen. So they've got to just trust him on this. The battle finally begins. 
with Imperial forces, Sith Imperial forces arriving above the Hidden Temple, uh, led by uh, Felaur, which is the uh, uh, the Chiss uh, Moth, of course, and uh, with Darth Strife also involved, and Moth Geist handling the ground troops, and so forth. We met Moth Geist before. So we have a ground assault taking place, a, a an assault from space taking place. We've got Joker Squad involved on the ground and just this massive, massive attack. And we find that uh, not necessarily everybody is as uh, as positive about this as otherwise because, of course, we have Skull Squadron in the battle fighting. And she's still not happy, yet his gunner is still not happy about having to fly under orders from a Sith at this point. And as the Minoc is evolved inside that attack, Morrigan, who's now in her Morrigan guys, not the Nina guys, is unwilling to attack at least one of the Starfighters because she's identified that that's the one carrying Gunner, and she's not going to attack Gunner, Cade's sister, which leads Jiraiya's great line, then fire at the other one! Hit something you ain't related to! Um, great moment. We see a continuing of the battle as the Sith troops, the ground troops, uh, get inside the temple. So we see a lightsaber duel going on in battle with uh, Shado Vow involved, Wolf Sazen involved, uh, Maricia, and Taris Draco, who hasn't even had a chance to get Imperial Knight armor on at this point still. Uh, Aslan Ray, uh, Ganner Krieg, all taking part. All these characters that we've seen before fighting alongside each other at this point. Uh, with Nat, more importantly, Nat and Cade Skywalker fighting alongside each other, which is going to be an issue in a future issue here. Um, and as they're fighting, they recognize the Sith have been drawn in. Now is the time. And they signal Garstazi and the Alliance Remnant fleet uh, and some of the uh, uh, the loyalist Imperial fleet emerge from hyperspace above Tyvus. And we have Garstazis, all ships, open fire, cut them to ribbons. And then uh, Master Sind, ship Sebastian, fire. And then Ronfell's fleet in the Galactic Alliance, Lord Crate, we're trapped. To which Crate simply says, yes. And we get the next <laughs> traps within traps as issue three and this episode's story coverage, at least, uh, wraps up. Good issue. What do you think? Man, one of the things I loved is the scene you just touched on is where Bantha and Cade come together. They're fighting the one Sith, and, he, and Cade goes, "Listen, Uncle Bantha, I'm sorry about earlier. Sorry about everything. Drew already said I should forgive you. Why not? You're my favorite nephew. I'm your only nephew. So what do you think? They swallow enough bait, and Bantha pulls out his calm. Yep, time to send the call now." What I like about this is my grandpa would always do that to me. I was always my grandpa's favorite grandson. Well, I was his only grandson, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and we like, should we should probably clarify for people who don't remember the reason why there's that outs between Kate and Nat in the first place is remember um, when Aslan Ray was injured and was wanting to just die, he essentially lied to uh, to Nat and to Drew so that they would heal her against mm-hmm. her will and against the will of the Force, essentially. So that's what still got them. You know, on the outs that has carried over. They don't actually mention why at any point within this, other than just the fact that they're still on the outs. But that was why it's going all the way back to the aftermath of uh, the vector crossover. Yeah, and what's weird too is like we see a moment with Aslan and Ganner, which again I love the fact that they're reusing names from the New Jedi Order. There was Ganner Riso, now you've got Ganner Krieg. But 
her armor is again back to Imperial Knight status. Like ah, but when we not. saw her, but it's not. Well, uh, yeah, it's got the it's got the neck thing. But yeah. I mean, like they were able to do what Cade and Bantha couldn't. Like Bantha was supposed to be able to hook something up that was like this. Like how he's supposed to be like the technological guru. Like I'm surprised that the Empire was able to do what he couldn't do. Like that that to me was something I found very interesting because her new armor looks very sleek. It doesn't look as bulky. Like before she looked like Tab Wardor or whatever that, that guy from the trade unit, the techno union, you know, it was like big, bulky, monstrous. Now it just looks like a regular Imperial Knights uniform with like a couple tubes going into her neck. It looks like she's got like a turtleneck on. That's about it. True. And again, it's good to see her back, see that she's part of this as well. Ganner doesn't really get to do a whole lot in this miniseries, but he's back here. Uh, we even get to see a rematch between Talon and Cade, which is something, of course, that ties back into Claws of the Dragon. Um, but again, this is another one of these that it, it's it strikes me that when I read this over again, I think I, when I first read it, I was thinking in terms of the bombastic battle and, ooh, the fate of the galaxy is at hand. But it's another mm-hmm. of these issues that while there's all that stuff going on and pushing the conflict forward... It really, to me, what stands out to me are those human moments. It's the those moments of character development. I mean, the fact that we finally get to a point where Cole, in spirit form, and Cade and Morrigan wind up essentially getting a chance to sort of clear the air. That Cade mm. gets a chance to clear the air with Nat. Um, that we finally, in a sense, uh, wind up seeing... Uh, to a degree, like we're seeing the beginnings of where some members of the Empire who have been questioning the Sith Empire, that is, who've been questioning the Sith's leadership are finally going to reach that point of, you know what, screw this um, because of the trap that he's, you know, yes, he's led them into a trap and they freaking know it. Um, all that type of stuff, I think, are those moments that stand out because it's less about the development of the situation and more about the development of the characters and their perceptions, even in terms of the Imperials who are going to realize they were sent out there basically as cannon fodder to wait for the bigger Sith force to arrive. Um, it's, it's another aspect. Again, it's once you've got a chance to invest in these characters, it matters. And I think that it's it's a testament to this series that we care so much for them, just like with Knights of the Old Republic, we care so much for Zane. Because what we had was a comic company that was willing to go into eras unknown— to give us characters we'd never met before, allow them to develop over a long period of time, and take some chances with being willing to let characters die, or change, or be on the outs, or irrevocably do things that simply cannot be taken back. And I feel like that, to me, it's one of the greatest strengths of this, and I wish, you know, beyond measure, that Marvel would realize this. And we've talked about Mm -hmm. this before, that... Marvel doesn't seem to be willing to take chances. It's all about the clickbait, and it's all about the safe characters that we already know their fates. Um, Just about every time they've given us a story, a lot of the menace has been gone. A lot of the chances for big character development has been gone, because how much can you really develop Luke, Han, Leia, Lando, Chewbacca, Poe Dameron in circumstances where we already know where they're ending up? And we kind of, in some cases, already know where they were, and there's just not much development between there. So telling a story in between means that you don't really have a chance for much development at all to be done. Um, Mm -hmm. And granted, it took a long time, you know, before Dark Horse got to the point of being able to do a, a series like Legacy. It is built on the foundation of decades of continuity. But Tales of the Jedi wasn't. Tales of the Jedi was one of the first series that Dark Horse launched. And I came to care about Ulick Keldroma. Ulick Keldroma is my second favorite Star Wars character behind Kate Skywalker. Yeah. Um, 
But I don't know. And I, I don't know if this is a Marvel thing, if this is a Disney thing, if this is a store group thing or what. But I cannot wait to see them finally let go of the shackles and say, you know what? We're going to do something new and something different and expand the universe. Because so far, as, as unfortunate as it is to say, I don't feel like the current story group canon, although it does have a lot of stories in it that I'm really liking, like Leia, Princess of Alderaan, Lost Stars, some of the stories and from a certain point of view are excellent. Um, they've done some really good stuff in the new canon. But it doesn't feel like we could ever call it an expanded universe because it doesn't feel in a lot of ways like the universe is expanding at all. It's still mm-hmm. contracted around a handful of individuals and situations and hasn't been allowed room to breathe and grow and do its own thing at all. Whereas this is the epitome in a lot of ways of Dark Horse doing that. Um, but to be, but that's the kind of thing I look for. I like those human moments, those character developments. Um, you know, take out all the lightsaber battling and, and stuff in this issue and push it all to the next issue. And this would still be a great issue because of the moment of forgiveness for Cade. Um, that, to me, speaks volumes more than the action sequences. In the realm of Marvel's new stuff, I think Dr. Aphra is the closest new character that really embraces mm-hmm. what it was to be an expanded universe character. You know, she's the Koran Horn, the Kyle Katarn. She's, you know, the one character that was created specifically to be a background character that they then were like, you know, let's, let's give her a starring role. Uh, the only other close one when I think of, you know, really good comics is Kanan, but Kanan falls into that trap of, well, all we can tell is the backstory. We can't really move forward because that's being told in Rebels and we can't jump past that or we risk, you know, giving away something there. So, you know, you're able to get that backstory, but it's still, that's, that's all you're going to get. Like, they can just fill in that shadowy past of where he came from. You had an idea. You knew he was a Padawan. We didn't know he was Caleb Dune. But there were all these really cool moments. Like, that was, like, the one comic that really feels like it's added background to a character in a way that I really care about. A lot of the additional background stuff, like like the Ahsoka book, good book, but... There was nothing bombastic about it. You know, there was nothing that really latched me onto it. I mean, it was just, this is what happened to Ahsoka after the Clone Wars and before Rebels. You know, I mean, it, it, and, and that's the thing. It's like, I don't want to just know about, I want there to be some major event or something, something that, that's important. Uh, and granted, not every, Dark Horse comic had those moments, but usually within the arcs and stuff, you did have a moment that it was big and bombastic where something happened to Coruscant or, you know, something happened to a major planet or a major species like the Mon Calmari all being wiped out. I mean, there were a lot of things like that. Well, can I say, can I say this to put that in perspective? Mm -hmm. So you're talking about we want stories that affect the galaxy. And I agree. We want stories that affect the galaxy, which doesn't seem like what we're getting in most cases outside of like aftermath. But I also want things that affect our characters. Mm-hmm. And I don't think there's a lot of that really happening. The, the strongest that we've seen that type of thing happening with the the characters that are being used in the current canon tends to be things like Bloodline and its impact on Leia. But otherwise, it's stuff like Lost Stars, where we have Thane Kyrell, Sienna Ree, brand new characters whose lives we don't know who they can do whatever they want with. Um, until they're really willing to introduce new characters and really sort of take them on their own directions, we're going to be probably having this same complaint. Again, though, different time, different era, different control system, different mission to some degree, I guess. Um, I don't know, because you could make the argument that, well, didn't we just get exactly that type of story that we want with Rogue One? Yes, but that was a movie. We also mm-hmm. want to see that in the other materials. Yeah. Ray Sloan's probably the only other expanded universe type character or uh, uh, what is his name? The uh, 
the kid from Rebels that was in the Oh God! It's right there on the top of my head. Zara Leonis. Yes, Leonis. Yes, yeah. Zara is the only other one who was intended for Rebels, but again, he came out in a book first, so it's like kind of like he's fudging that line. There was some interesting dialogue too that made me stop and wonder. You know, you mentioned Drew and Bantha Rock's daughter Anna, uh, and she's now with her unit. Nat goes, Ah, she's too young for war. Drew says she has her duty as a guardian born. There's no avoiding your legacy. Yeah, seems so. Cole always said that. Always hoped he was wrong. We take what's given, eh? And what I find interesting is that Anna is adopted by Nat, yet that kind of puts the whole legacy angle. It plays better if she actually was his child, you know, his legitimate birth child. Like, to me, like, I, I, I go back and forth with that because, like, we still at this point, we didn't know whether Nate was Ben's son or grandson. But I think the fact that Roan fell is the third emperor fell and Jagged was the first, which basically means Roan is Jag's grandson. I think that that gives a good example that if Jaina is the grandmother of Roan, then Ben should be the grandfather of Cade. Like, it, to me, that, that just seems like it makes sense. And it's interesting, too, because, like, there's this whole aspect of them being like down for the dark women kind of thing. Like, like you wonder if the aspect of Ben, if it was supposed to be Ben and Vistara Kai, right? Like if Nat and Cole's mom was once a lost tribe of the Sith, like if that gives them a certain appreciation for women on the dark side, cause you look at Luke, right? Luke went for a empire's hand, you know, she, Mara was a dark sider before she became light. And then you've got all these guys that have done the same. Ben did the same thing with the Stark Eye. He's attracted to the dark side and you've got Cade, you know, he's like leaning towards talent at times. Like you wonder if there's like something going on there that was purposely wrote in by John, you know, I mean, it's just, it cracked me up, but I kept thinking about that. Like, you know, just the fact that Nat is who he is, is enough to make her as the adopted daughter feel like she's got to also meet up to his legacy. Like, it's interesting. It plays either way, but there's a part of me that's like, man, it almost would play better if he was biological. But it also, again, it makes point in the aspect of, well, he didn't leave the Jedi Order until much later, so he wouldn't have fathered a child, or would he? Because Luke did, so why wouldn't it make sense? I don't know. I go back and forth on that. I kind of think it's a mistake to make him adopted, or her adopted, I think. I don't know. I mean, that's the thing about Star Wars, is Star Wars has always been about sort of family being whatever you make of it, in a sense. So, I'm not sure that that's... That that I don't think that ever would have occurred to me, that idea of of that sort of thing. But again, I kind of go back to my experience. Um, I uh, Years ago, I mean this has been – shoot, this is probably like uh, mid-first decade of the 2000s or so. Um, a friend of mine – I haven't actually talked to her in a long time, but a friend of mine is adopted and had never known her birth parents and was trying to save up to have a search done, which you could do, to figure out who your birth parents were and find them. And uh, I actually – I stepped in and helped with that financially so that she could actually pull that off. And nice. it was interesting because of how the dynamic worked whenever she actually had a chance to meet those biological parents versus the ones that she that, – that, that raised her, that she grew up with. And even though there was sort of that, wow, this is this nifty new thing, there's sort of this later revelation that, you know what, that's true. That is family, but the ones that adopted me, they are my true place where I belong. Um so to me, I think that, again, it's, it's more about sort of the choice of family or it's more about, you know, who you're around rather than necessarily being the biology of it. But that's, of course, you know, that's sort of a real world thing. You know, Star Wars character perceptions may be different. Um, but I like that. And we got an issue here that ends with 
what is basically a cliffhanger, not because they're, you know, the cavalry's riding to the rescue, but because we know there's another trap mm-hmm. coming. You know, uh, you mentioned when they got to the wheel, there was another great bit of dialogue here. They're walking around. This is their first time seeing it. And Blue goes, place reeks like a slash rat's nest. How come Sazen always gets the cushy job taking her royal nibs to the hidden temple, but we got to slum it? Okay, promised to meet Morgan Cord here. I'd skip it, but Sin would pout. And Sin goes, friends! Me and your mom, uh, Morgan, are just friends. That's all, really. <laughs> because, like, he's been hitting on her so hard. Like, <laughs> and the fact that he has to establish that, like, I'm not trying to bang your mom, man. I swear to God. Like, oh, the conversation. Because these two have such a history. I just, I find it so funny. Because I've actually had friends that were similar to that. We're just like, really? You guys, are, you guys are just twisted, man. And so to see this relationship between those two kind of just puts a smile on my face. Um, Cade's mom has got it going on, right? So there could right? be a whole song for that. Uh, I, I find it, thinking back to the dialogue there, I didn't even think about it until you actually read it out loud. But uh, uh, taking her royal nibs to the hidden temple. Is she basically <laughs> saying taking her royal tits to the temple? Is that what she's saying? Is right? that what nibs is? <laughs> Did we just get Delia Blue referring to Maricia's breasts as a way of talking about the characterization? Uh, what? It's, it's like that taking sweet to the concert. Like, exactly. Oh my god. Wait, wait, what? <laughs> and, and yet, that would sound exactly, you know, in character coming from Delia or Jariah. Yeah, either one. Yeah, exactly. Either one. Because, I mean, she's Zeltron, so she's already sexually charged, so that makes sense. And Jariah, he's just, he's, as the phrase goes, swinging dick. Like, whoa! Just, whoa! Just bad. <laughs> Bad, bad. What, uh, who, what allies are you bringing into battle, Jiraiya? Well, as Tom Allen once said, or Tim Allen, excuse me, once said, Big Sam and the Twins. Don't worry about it. <laughs> yes, anyway, yes. we've gone kind of far afoul of this. Well, uh, any last things you want to add for this issue before we wrap it up? There are. There was one thing Kate asked his mom that's been kind of bothering me with his mom's whole double agent status. He goes, how stupid are you? You brought the Sith into the war. You're the reason my father was killed, and you come to me? Like, and I... I mean, that's the one thing, like, we finally get who came first, the chicken or the egg with her, but we still don't really explain why she decided to side with the Sith to wipe out the Jedi. Like, that never really gets explained in a way that I feel comfortable with. Like, it's completely flossed over, and I have no idea what was the motivation there to basically screw your ex-husband so figuratively to get him murdered and have your son thrown into life of piracy. Like... So it made me stop and think when we have that moment where Gunner's about to shoot down her her own brother. It's like, who has it worse here? Did did Cade have it worse because his mom left them and started another family? Or did Gunner have it worse because her mom was a complete lie and everything was a cover? Like, I can't fathom which would be the worst position to be in in that regard. Like, it just blows my mind. The other thing, too, is... Cade has basically taken Mace's shatter points and found a way to exploit it for good or evil. I think that's an interesting aspect as well, because, you know, the shatter point was always Mace's thing. Like, they hinted maybe Anakin could do similar, but he was never really trained. Luke never had the ability. Ben never had the ability. This seems like Cade's, like, the only Skywalker to have a natural ability with it, and he's taken it to the next level, which is very interesting in and of itself. And here I was just sitting here not thinking deeply and wondering whether or not... uh Nat Skywalker and Cole Skywalker uh, had either a another brother named King or maybe another brother who was a king because then you could have Nat King Cole right there. And <laughs> I guess not. I wonder if that was intentional. Do you think that was intentional? Nat and Cole. Now that you say that, I'm I'm probably sure of that. Uh, another thing I liked about 
this whole battle right before the, the trap is sprung. Kate and Bantha, they know why they chose Tavia, because it's a great place for the Jedi now to use this as an anvil to smash the Sith and the Alliance fleets together. It, it's almost like uh, the, oh gosh, was it... Was it in Star by Star or Dark Journey or even later where Jaina Solo was on Debek 9 or something like that and they did the same thing to Tuzvong Laws uh, using Vong where they smashed him up against the planet and they couldn't get out and the Jedi themselves were the bait? Like, I thought that was a really cool moment. And then we've got Master Kakrok agreeing. You know, he's like, agreed then. It's worth the risk of losing our home to, de- to deliver a severe, perhaps fatal blow to the Sith Empire. It is the battle we have been preparing for since Ossus. And, you know, this plan of Cades puts the youngling at risk. He urges that there's no time to evacuate him and his uncle, he's not happy with it, nor is Shadow. Uh, Shadow goes, Cade, we must speak. Bantha, yeah, risking the youngling sits wrong with me, Cade. Cade's like, you think I like it? Take what's given, right? Do what we gotta do? Don't you go quote my brother's words back at me. I backed your plan. It made sense. But the kids? I know neither of you much like me, but if we don't take out Crate, he will kill us to the last Jedi. Younglings included. And of course, you know, in this era, I couldn't help but, oh, Last Jedi reference. Oh my gosh, we see it. Woo, have fun. So with that, I think that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. We'd like to thank you once again for hanging around with us as we ponder on sharing our fandom. And of course, a huge Starkiller base size thank you to our editor, Michael Yankovic, for editing, mixing, and mastering each episode of Beyond the Films for your listening entertainment and for helping us keep going. Remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division of Podcasts at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes are also available on Stitcher and iTunes, which we always encourage you to leave us a review while you're at it. You can also find links to our episodes on both our Twitter and Facebook pages at SWBeyondFilms, or just type in Stars Beyond the Films in your search bar. Hey, but no matter how you get there, be sure to like our Facebook page. It is literally the best way to interact with us. It is our own home one, if you will. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you fellow fans, so if you have any Star Wars, Legends, or EU questions, or you just want to comment about a past episode, fire off. You can always email us directly at SWBeyondFilms at StarWarsFanWars.com And lastly, before we go, we wanted to mention to our sponsors. We have to thank Tops, of course, and we've also got our Audible trial. If you go to www.audibletrial.com slash Report, you can get a free trial run of Audible to see what they're all about. Our sponsors, they have more than 100,000 titles. You can explore the Star Wars Expanded Universe or any other genre without risk of being stuck with a book you flat out hate, because Audible members, they can exchange any book within 12 months, that's one year, with no questions asked. So in this digital age, if you're thinking of making that switch from the page to the audiobook, Audible just might be right for you. So, once again, for Stars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark and Whistler. And Nathan. Saying thanks for listening and may the force be with you. And don't quote us the odds that we'll see any of the Marvel series actually reach issue 50 or beyond. Maybe they'll do some relaunching of series and stuff like that to keep it accessible. Oh, man. What are the odds that they go back? Like, they'll get to, like, 25 and then go to arcs again. (laughs) 